welcome our pastor Chris to the stage to uh, bring the message this morning. Let's give him a warm round of applause. Awesome, thank you. Thank you guys. You can take your seats. For those of you who uh, don't know, this year we've been uh, going through the New Testament and explaining the the culture and the context of some of the books that we find in there. And uh, I've been giving a little mini-series on three of the smallest books in the New Testament. Uh, We started last week with Jude. This week we're talking about the book of Titus. And uh, next week we'll be talking about Philemon, uh, which is the smallest book in the New Testament. But to get into it, the book of Titus, unlike the book of Jude that we looked at last week, Titus is not the author of the book. This is actually a to Titus from the Apostle Paul. And so Titus is the recipient, whereas last week Jude was actually the writer of the letter. So we've got a bit of a swap here. So the question is, who is Titus and why is Paul writing him this short but blunt letter? Well, if you look at the screen, we'll get, we'll, I'll show you in, in pictorial form uh, what we're looking at here. We've got this Titus, who Paul's writing to. He's a Greek Christian and he's a co-worker of Paul's and he's trusted. If we look in Galatians 2 and in 2 Corinthians 7 and 8, we discover that Paul mentions Titus in both of these um, books. And he mentions Titus in glowing terms. Titus is Paul's go-to guy. He's got him out of a couple of difficult scrapes. And so for for a reward, Paul has taken Titus to Crete. And he and Titus are so excited about Crete because Paul sees it as a great place to start the gospel. Now, have you ever, you ever heard the expression, damned by faint praise? No. Okay, forget it then. Uh, what do you think Paul would find a place, a, a, a gold mine for preaching the gospel? Because they're really good people and they don't need the gospel? No. So the, the fact that Paul is so keen on starting some churches here in Crete tells you something, doesn't it? It tells you that they needed the gospel. And so Paul has said, Crete is perfect for this. He and Titus go to Crete. They set up some house churches. You can see some little house churches dotted around here. <laughs> and, and they're excited about it because Crete is a, is a um, maritime hub in the Mediterranean because there's lots of, it's only a reasonably small island, but there are lots of ports scattered around it. So a lot of people come to visit Crete. It's actually developed a reputation, not a, not a particularly good one. Um, But they're going great guns. They've started these house churches and Paul leaves Titus to get the job done. And we assume at some point that Titus has got onto his mobile phone and he's rung Paul and he said, look, Paul, things are not going quite the way we'd planned. And so this is why Paul has written this letter to Titus because uh, the churches have actually come under the influence of some corrupt Cretan leaders. Does this sound familiar, this corrupt? For those of you who are last week, it should have a familiar ring to it. Um, And so these corrupt leaders have led the church in the wrong direction. And so Paul has written to Titus with instructions on how to restore order. So are we clear? Got to be excited. Before we go any further, let's pray. Lord, I thank you 
that people here have hearts open and ears to hear your word, that it doesn't just come as information but transformation, that it is something we can apply into our lives and be different when we walk out than when we came in. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Awesome. So the first thing Paul has to address is the battle of the gods. We've got the Cretan Zeus on one side and we have the Christian God on the other side, who is a triumvirate, three, there's three of them. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, so the, the big problem is that the Cretans, and let's get something straight here. When we talk about Cretans, we're talking about people from Crete. When we talk about Cretans, that's something different, but as I'll explain a bit later, it is actually derived from Cretans. Um, so let, let's, let, when I say Cretan, I'm talking about somebody from Crete. And so the Cretans actually believed got, Greek gods were mere men and women elevated to deities through benevolent service and gifts to mankind. So the, the picture you see, if you've ever seen, um, name me some of those Greek movies with uh, Liam Neeson as Zeus. Um, uh, yeah, Clash of the Titans. We see Zeus as this... Uh, fairly shadowy but benevolent and fatherly figure who's a very responsible and feels keenly the, uh, the naughtiness of some of the other gods in the pantheon of Greek gods. Uh, but the Cretans didn't actually believe that. They believed that Zeus was actually a man who uh, gave gifts and rose to deity through his service to mankind and was actually born on Crete. I actually thought he was buried there as well, which tells you a lot about their view of God. Um, and so the majority of Greek gods were actually supposed to be born on Crete. And this mythology was so entrenched in Cretan culture that the churches in Paul's day were integrating their understanding of the Christian God with the prevailing views about the Greek gods, mainly Zeus. Now this was bad news because I'm not quite sure how Zeus got to be a god because it's basically recorded that his main characteristics were that he loves to seduce women by any means necessary even by assuming godlike characteristics to get what he wanted. In a nutshell, Zeus was a liar and a womanizer, and the Cretans immortalized him for this. Strange. They took pride in his shade character and underhanded ways. So now you're getting a bit of a taste of what Paul had to deal with. So he's got this great mythology he's dealing with. So aware of this context, Paul wants to make it crystal clear that the God revealed in Jesus is totally different to Zeus. And he conveys that by contrasting the character of our three-in-one God to Zeus the liar. And he starts off with this idea that a true God could even be a lying God. And so in verse 1, he starts off, this letter is from Paul, a slave of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. Lives, not lies. <laughs> That's exactly what he's trying not to get. Um, this truth gives them the confidence that they have eternal life, which God, by the way, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. And now just at the right time, he has revealed this message, which we announced to everyone. It is by the command of God, our Saviour, that I have been entrusted with this work for him. So he's making the point here. Zeus may be a liar, but God cannot and will not lie because his essential nature is that of a non-lying God. Unlike Zeus, this God can be trusted to carry out his redemptive promises for the good of his people. 
In other words, it's a sure bet. So he makes this point clear from the get-go. And secondly, he needs to subvert this idea that man can become God. And so he offers a different theology, or it's actually a Christology, which is a fancy word for the study of Jesus. And he talks about the fact that God became man. And he intentionally butts up against this cultural myth by insisting that Jesus appeared among humans from above and not from beneath. And so he reinforces Jesus' credentials throughout this, this letter um, by speaking of God the Father, because most people, when you talk about God, they, they think of God Almighty, Yahweh, the, the big God, Lord in all capitals. And people understand that quite well, that there's an overarching God. But Jesus as God is harder for a lot of people to grasp hold of. And so Paul actually very carefully and very cleverly speaks of God the Father as God our Saviour throughout this letter. And then simultaneously he speaks of Jesus, that is the incarnate Son of God, as Jesus Christ our Saviour, almost in the same breath. Watch how he does this. He does this in, uh, throughout the, the letter in a couple of, um, not triplets, what's two of them? Duplexes? That's sort of a house. Um, anyway, he uses two verses. So if we look in Titus... Uh, Doublets, that's the one, doublets. You can wear them as well because they've got two holes for the sleeves. Um, that's not how I remember how to put my clothes on, by the way. Um, Titus 1.3 says, It is by the command of God our Saviour, referring to the Father, that I have entrusted this work for him, with this work for him. And in the very next verse, he says, May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour give you grace and peace. And so he's... he's He's formed the letter so that God and Jesus become intermingled. In, in uh, chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Then they will make the teachings about God our Saviour attractive in every way. Followed by verse 13, where he says, While we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. And so he, he's sandwiching things in here to give people a strong case for the fact that Jesus Christ is the same as God. And in chapter 3, verse 4, he says, But when God our Saviour revealed his love, kindness and love. And in verse 6, he says, He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Saviour. And so the point is, if God the Father and Jesus the Son are both the same, God and Saviour, then Jesus is God. Does that make sense? Because it made sense to them. If it doesn't make sense, I'm not explaining it well. Put your hat. No, I won't ask. <laughs> okay, and the other thing is, unlike Zeus, he doesn't assume deity for his own gain. Rather, though he is God, he sets aside his divine privileges and actually condescends to humanity for our benefit. So Paul hammers home the point. The Christian God revealed in the coming of Jesus is not like Zeus, is not like Zeus, is not like Zeus, is not like Zeus. Good news, right? Well, he gets that point across, but then he has another problem. And the problem, of course, is the Cretans themselves. What is wrong with the Cretans, you might ask? Well, God wasn't cast in the image of Zeus, but the Cretans certainly were. The people were such a lying, self-indulgent, sexually promiscuous bunch that Crete became proverbial for immorality in the ancient world. To be a Cretan 
was to be an immoral liar. Now, we use the term slightly differently today. It's obviously been um, changed in its meaning. Uh, we won't go into that, but if somebody calls you a Cretan after this service, then um, you might feel uh, obliged to take issue with them. So, on top of that, not only were they liars and immoral, but the, the men were known for their violence and often served as mercenary soldiers to the highest bidder. So Cretan soldiers were known as being uh, violent, slightly crazy. Their women enjoyed greater privileges than their Greek counterparts, but exploited their freedom to indulge in casual sex and early appetites. No wonder they worshipped Zeus. He seemed to be the perfect god for that sort of behaviour. So being a follower of Jesus, of course, and we know this, means progressively transforming into his image. But Paul gets a report that the Christians were looking more like Zeus than Jesus. So to make matters worse, these churches had come under the destructive teachings of some Christians who were ethnically Jewish Cretans, who said they followed Jesus, but then they started demanding that non-Jewish Christians be circumcised and follow the Torah. And they were themselves so immersed in Cretan culture that they endorsed the ethical values of Crete. Now we can see that there could be a slight issue here with how the church can be run. So Paul, Paul doesn't mince words about this. He, he, he quotes an ancient Cretan uh, poet called Epimenides. And Epimenides wasn't kind about his own people. And in Titus 1.12, Paul says, Even one of their own men, a prophet from Crete, has said this about them. The people of Crete are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. This is true. He's not holding back here, is he? So reprimand them sternly to make them strong in the faith. They must stop listening to Jewish myths and the commands of people who have turned away from the truth. He's livid about what's happening here. Because the thing that we fear today, as much as then, is happening to this church. Belief in Jesus was not matched by any change in behaviour. Unbelievers were turned off the gospel, and rightly so. Who wants to follow Jesus when you can't see any change in their followers? Where following Zeus is so much easier because you don't have to change a thing. And you can get on and enjoy life. <laughs> Why would people reject Zeus in favour of Jesus if there was no compelling evidence of transformation in the lives of Jesus' followers? So, we get this urgent letter from Paul to Titus to tell him, set things straight and do it now. The worry about all this carry-on was that the gospel was looking pretty unattractive. It was giving the watching world, A, an opportunity to insult the word of God, to make evil accusations about the faith, and to reject the good news about Jesus. So Paul gets clear instructions. He's to appoint shepherd-like men or elders to serve and protect young churches. He was to rebuke and kick out the false leaders who were in it for personal gain, purging the church of their evil. He was to straighten out the Christians who were giving the gospel a bad reputation. They were to live in a way that made Jesus compelling to the watching world. Does Cretan society remind you of anything? Just saying. Um, this in turn would result in a new kind of humanity proclaiming the goodness of the saving God and offering an alternative to the Cretan way of life. But I know, I know what you're all asking. 
You're all there sitting. It's all very well for Paul to write a letter to Titus about this, but that's a pretty tall order. How could the Cretan Christians live in this way and the agents of change in such a corrupt culture? Ah, that's where the gospel comes in. Anybody heard of the gospel? See, Paul believed in the power of the gospel. What, what is one of the greatest aspects of the gospel that I think we take for granted is the whole concept of grace. See, grace is what trains us to participate in our society, not to assimilate. I'll repeat that. Grace trains us to participate, not assimilate. The ethical lifestyle that Paul is calling the Cretan Christians to would be impossible, as it is today, if not for the appearance of the grace and loving kindness of God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 4. It says, but, who loves it when but comes into it? But when God, our Saviour, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, mostly because we hadn't done any, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Saviour. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to insist on these teachings so that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. So this tells us that the only source powerful enough to change people like the Cretans or people like you and me is the transforming love of the one true God. The powerful implication of this is that through the saving work of Jesus and the empowerment of the Spirit, people can really change. How often do you hear it? People don't change. doesn't matter what you do. Deep down, people don't really change. If we're relying on our strength, guess what? I believe that's true. But if we can take a hold of the grace of God, if we can actually understand the saving work of Jesus and the power of his Spirit, then we can really change. The Cretans could change then, and we can change today. We don't have to remain stuck in the image of the false gods of our day, nor conform to the culture around us. Paul says the gospel is powerful enough to transform someone into a new creation who then becomes an agent of change within culture, whether you live on the island of Crete or in Adelaide, South Australia. Which I'm not sure Paul said that bit. You don't actually need to retreat from culture because who knows that it's tempting to retreat from the culture that we have because sometimes it's, it's antagonistic, it's aggressive, it's unkind. But he says we don't also, we don't actually have to wage a war on our culture either. In fact, he says don't do that. Don't assimilate the worldly values of our day, but rather let the grace of God train us on how to live out a spirit-empowered faithfulness to the teachings and ethics of Jesus within the world. And as we live out this countercultural gospel in reliance on the Spirit, we need to declare God's goodness and grace to our families, to our neighbours, 
to our co-workers, to our friends, to our communities, and the whole world. You'll be doing redemptive theology. Who's ever wanted to do redemptive theology? <laughs> Who knows what redemptive theology is? Yeah. There's another word for it which is much easier to understand. It's called discipleship. See, we often think discipleship begins when people become Christians. We think discipleship begins when we can actually get them to understand the word of God, to accept the spirit of God into their heart. But discipleship begins as soon as you meet someone. Because we carry something. It doesn't matter who we meet, we carry the grace of God and the redemptive power of his Holy Spirit in our hearts. And so every interaction we have, every person we speak to, every person we help, unfortunately every person we insult, every person we injure, we are actually having an impact on. But if we have the grace of God in our hearts and in our spirits, we can, we can disciple people outside the church, showing them the beauty of the message about our saving God. Who's excited about that? You see, that is how this little book packs such a powerful punch. Paul came and wrote a letter that showed them how their faith in God, their understanding of the grace of God, could make them more powerful than they could believe. Can I pray for you? Let's stand. There's a powerful message in this that as an individual, as powerless as we might feel in our situation, whether we're at home all day, whether we're at school, whether we're in a workplace, whether we're in a government setting, a private setting, an educational setting, a business setting, whatever it is. Paul tells us that our, our grasp of the gospel, our grasp of the good news determines the power that we have in us to transform people's lives. If we're prepared to live out spirit-empowered faithfulness, then we can actually affect people. We can change people. We can, we can be redemptive theologians. You don't have to remember that. You can just be disciples. But we actually have to take that on board. Some of us want to shrink from our culture because our culture is cruel to us. Some of us take the opposite stance because our culture is cruel. We want to fight a battle against our culture. We want to get a placard and wave down with something that we don't like. We end up being people who are anti-social. We're not actually called to be anti-anything. We're called to be for something. And so, I don't know what your situation is in your, in your home, your workplace, where, where, wherever you spend the majority of your week. And you may have not even thought of discipling the people around you. Your only thought may have been of survival. But I want to pray for the strength to rise up and start believing in what God has put inside of us. And then I want to go a step further and start to think of strategies for us to do that. People that we can actually speak to. 
actions that we can actually take that will bring the notice of God's grace to people who don't know it. And then we need to pray for the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit so that we can actually show people not only that our lives are transformed by our knowledge of Jesus Christ, but we can transform theirs. But it takes courage. It takes stepping out. It actually takes a flip of our most common approach, which is me first, then everybody else. I want to protect my heart, and then when I feel protected, I might go out and speak to someone. God says, no, be vulnerable. Allow yourself to be hurt, because the one who created you loves you and protects you from all hurt. Who's prepared to be an adapt, a, 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 what was the term? A uh, redemptive theologian. Come on, raise your hands to heaven this morning. Let's pray. Mighty God, fill us with your spirit. Empower us with your grace. Let us not be caught up in the idea that we are not worthy, we are not capable, we are not the people you have chosen to do your work. We are more than conquerors in this place, whatever our daily life. From this moment on, we're going to step in as conquerors and more than conquerors. There is nothing, no weapon formed on this earth that can come against what you have dictated is our purpose in this life. And Lord, we ask you to give us the strategies, the people to actually impact with your grace, your holiness and your power. Let our faith not be an empty thing, but a thing of power and beauty in our own lives and the lives of the people around us. Lord, fill us with your spirit. Let us not be afraid of the power that you've put in us, but let us rejoice. the grace and the mercy and the peace and the power that you have put into our lives through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Just stay standing quickly, if you will. You may be here this morning and you've heard about the uh, redemptive power of Jesus. You, might, you may even um, sort of feel that you're a bit like the Cretans, that you've got a life which perhaps needs turning around. Or you may even be happy with your life. But there's no power in it. I'm here to tell you this morning that a life with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour is not a life of shrinking back. It's not a life of passive acceptance of what the world can throw at you. It's actually an active participation in the plans and purposes of Almighty God through the power of His Son Jesus Christ in our lives. And that power, that grace, that peace is not thrust upon us, but we don't have to beg for it. It's actually a simple gift of God that is ours for the asking. And if you're here this morning and you would like to ask God into your life, you'd like to say, I want to take part in that redemptive power. I want to be able to speak into people's lives, heal them and transform them. Not through my strength, but through the power of God in me. 
then I want to offer you an opportunity. We, all we have to do is believe in our heart and speak out that change with our mouths. And we do that in this church by a small prayer. And we do all that together. So I'm not going to pull you out the front and ask you to pray that prayer out here. But what I will do is so that I know who I'm talking to while we're all standing here, I'm going to ask everybody to close their eyes and bow their heads if they will. And if that's you, you want to get Jesus Christ into your life to start afresh as a, as a Christ follower. Or you've done it before, but you know that you're not actually living a transformed life and you want to reset that and start again. Jesus accepts everybody who is prepared to take that step, whether it's the first time, second, or even more. If that's you this morning, while every eye is closed and head bowed, could you just raise your hand so that I can see it, so that I know who I'm praying with, and we'll all pray that prayer together in just a moment. Is there anybody here this morning? Raise it nice and high. Awesome. Can you, you can open your eyes. Let's, let's just pray that prayer together to remind ourselves of who we serve. Repeat after me. Dear God Almighty, from this moment on, I dedicate my life to you. Send your spirit into my heart. Transform me into a child of God. Lord, I am yours. Amen. Awesome. You may be seated. Let's thank Pastor Chris this morning.